welcome once again to the Ebone Zone. I invite you to sit back, relax, and listen for the 238th time on this Friday, June 25th, 2021. I hope you enjoy this week's episode, part one in a novel review series on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. This episode contains spoilers. How's about another novel? You might remember last time we covered C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, and I really enjoyed that, so I figured, Why not? Let's do another one. This time we find ourselves staring down the barrel of Mary Shelley's classic, Frankenstein. You know how these episodes go. I'll give a summary, chapter by chapter, and then at the end of the series, I'll give my thoughts on the book as a whole. Just a quick note before we get into things. Since my decision to read and review this book was inspired by the Frankenstein, a new musical Broadway production, for each chapter I cover in these episodes, I'll link a song from the show in the description so you can check it out if you want. Now, let's get rolling, shall we? Chapter 1 starts out with our narrator, who says he's from a pretty respectable line of people. His dad worked with the public for a really long time and was highly respected in his community by the people he served. He wanted to find a good woman and marry early, but some stuff came up and he couldn't, so it wasn't until later in life that he finally became a father. We learn also that one of his best friends was a merchant who fell on hard times. This man's name was Beaufort, and he didn't want to live in poverty, so he took his daughter and packed up for another town to live unknown while also sort of feeling sorry for himself. And then when our narrator's dad hears about Beaufort moving away and being hard on himself, he's like, Not on my watch. That's my friend you're talking about. And goes off to find him at whatever cost. Ten months later, he finds Beaufort, but he's not in that good a shape. For three months, Beaufort's been depressed and he doesn't really do much. But on the bright side, he hopes to one day get a job at a merchant's house to get a little money to his name. His daughter, Caroline Beaufort, steps up to the plate to support her dad while he's down and out. She spins straw and earns barely enough to live on herself, but hey, at least it's something, right? And after a few more months, Beaufort grows worse for the wear, and he ultimately passes away, leaving Caroline to beg on the streets. Then comes our so far nameless narrator's dear old dad, who takes her under his wing and gives her a place to live in Geneva, Switzerland. Two years later, they get married, and he took good care of her, really making sure that the trauma of her past wasn't brought up again. Later, though, they set up shop in Italy, and that's where our narrator was born, in Naples. And his parents love him. They make it a point to take really good care of him, even with all the traveling they get up to. The kid and his parents then go to Germany and help the poor there. He says that his parents were always tender-hearted and willing to help out any way they could, even if they didn't have to because in his mom's mind, it was something she needed to do. She viewed it as because she was less fortunate for a while, and she knew how it felt, she didn't want anyone else to be in that situation. So she planned to do anything she could to make sure the people who were had the best life possible. Pretty noble, if I do say so myself. A little while later, the narrator's dad goes to Milan, and then his mom finds an orphan girl unlike any other she'd ever seen. So she takes her home and raises her as her own. When his dad gets back from Milan, safe to say he's in for a bit of surprise. In just a short time, we find out that the orphan girl's name is Elizabeth, and that she's sort of like the daughter the narrator's parents never had. Also, we find out the narrator's name is Victor, Victor Frankenstein. He discovers Elizabeth and vows to protect her. 
he views Elizabeth as his, and that might actually not be entirely his fault, considering that his mom, Caroline, said that she had a pretty present for him. Okay, that's... That's a bit weird. He says later that the reason he protects her is because he wants her to be his and his only until the day she dies. Okay, that's a bit weird. If you're not picking up what I'm laying down, he basically has a crush on his adopted sister. And that's how we transition to chapter two. Wow. That escalated quickly. So now that Victor has the hots for his adopted sister, they get along well. And you know that saying, opposites attract... Well, that was apparently the case with these two, because their differences drew them closer together. Elizabeth is calm and put together, while Victor is crazy about the books. He wants to know anything and everything he can. He wanted to learn the laws of nature and be a philosopher. Victor's parents, on the other hand, eventually calm down and give up the traveling life, resigning to their house in Switzerland for the remainders of their lives. Victor finds a guy by the name of Henry, and they're fast friends. They think alike, and they do things alike. Although I suspect Henry didn't have a crush on his own sister. Seriously, Victor, that's disgusting. Then later, Victor tells us he wants to explain all of the events that led up to him pursuing philosophy. Just a hunch, I'm betting a lot of it has to do with an eight-foot monster made from the bones and organs of Victor's dead friends. Just going out on a limb here. He finds a book from Cornelius Agrippa and thinks it's really interesting. But his dad, however... Well, he thinks it's a no-count piece of disproved junk and says he'd be better to burn it than read it. Still, our man Victor goes on reading, because even in the 1800s, there were people who rebelled against their parents. As Victor keeps reading, he progressively gets more and more obsessed with Agrippa's writing and wants to read everything the man wrote. So that's exactly what he does. He studies philosophy with a lot of passion, but still, there's this nagging thought of anything you can do, I can do better. So he sets out on his own. He later tells a story about a tree that was destroyed by a thunderstorm when he was 15. And that's what gets the wheels turning in Victor's mind. After all the studying he's done, something clicks when he sees how powerful the lightning is and how it destroyed a tree right in front of him. In chapter 3, we pick back up with Victor at 17 years old, and his parents want him to go to college. But before he can get going with that, something happens that's not all favorable to his cause. His sister has gotten scarlet fever, and she survives. But as her mom was taking care of her, she got it and didn't fare so well. She dies, and while that makes Victor sad, it also gets him thinking about grief, life, death, and family. He's in a bit of a pickle here, because he didn't want to leave his dad or Elizabeth and even his friend Henry. You see, Henry's dad was a traitor, so they didn't have enough money to send him off to college with Victor, even though Henry wanted to go. The next morning, Victor goes off to college, alone. And on the way there, he realizes that it means he'll have to fend for himself. He starts thinking a lot about his place in life after leaving home. And when he finally gets to college, he meets a professor of natural philosophy who asks him about his studies so far. And when Victor tells him about Agrippa and the others, alchemists as he called them, the professor echoes the same words that Victor's dad said to him in chapter one. Junk. Stupidity. Idiots. So while he's tearing down Victor's entire thought process, he gives our main man some books that are more modern and sends him home. Later, Victor remembers that the professor is going to be lecturing and blows him off because the way he's got it figured, there's better things to do than listen to some old guy dismantle his heroes. 
Eventually, he goes because he's curious and meets a professor by the name of Waldman who teaches about people who have performed miracles. People who can tell you how blood flows and how bones are configured in the body and how lightning lights up the sky. That gets Victor thinking again. He decides then and there, in that lecture hall of his college, that he will follow in the footsteps of the philosophers before him and figure out the mysteries of life. So from that lecture, Victor knows now that he's got to be a philosopher, and he wants to help save the world in his own way. He was so focused on this, in fact, that he sometimes spent all night in his lab trying different experiments. He made quick progress, and his professors were impressed at his dedication. In fact, he makes so much progress, his professors say that his residence at the college is no longer dependent on his success. So he considers going home for a bit, you know, taking it easy and chilling out for a little while, but... It didn't exactly go that way because he catches on a question about life. What causes it, and what causes its counterpart, death? That question alone keeps him in school, dedicated again to his studies. He tried anatomy, but it didn't faze him. He wanted to know more about death and how it works. Eventually, he figures out he needs to go deeper than just death. Reanimation is what Victor's after. How to bring the dead back from the grave. Now, obviously, we know that only Jesus can do something like that, so this probably won't end well. After this, he's kind of power drunk. He thinks he's the next great philosopher and then tells the reader that his secret is dangerous. And he doubted even trying what he learned in the first place, but somehow found some encouragement and decided to go ahead with the creation of human life. Victor decides he'll create a man, eight feet tall and made from the limbs and organs of dead people. Kind of gross, if I'm honest. Eventually, this pursuit leads him so far in that he forgets his friends and family. He's consumed by the prospect of creating new life from those that have none. In Chapter 5, we flash to November, and Victor thinks he's finally completed his task. He's tired and anxious and unsure about what could happen. When he sees that he's actually done what he set out to do, he's terrified, and like any good scientist, he runs away from his experiment. Now, of course, I was being sarcastic when I said that because what he's made isn't your average everyday run-of-the-mill thrown together the night before middle school baking soda volcano. This thing's got arms, legs, a heartbeat, and most likely a temper to go with it. So I wouldn't go as far to say that running off is the best idea. He goes to take a nap and he dreams about kissing Elizabeth, which is cute and endearing, or at least it is until you find yourself having a shock of reality and end up screaming at the pages, Do you just not know, or do you not care? Victor, what are you doing? She is your sister, my guy. Stop it. Then, if that's not crazy enough, the dream gets stranger, because Elizabeth turns into a corpse, and guess whose it is? His mom's. When he wakes up, there's the monster, staring him in the face like a loyal yellow lab who's ready for his afternoon walk. As you'd expect, Victor practically trips over himself trying to leave. Then our skittish friend hides out in the garden for the rest of the night, because, though it was unbeknownst to him at the time, an eight-foot mass of decaying skin and bone lurching towards you with the intention to either kill or hug you is a very frightening thing. The next morning, we see Henry's back. He apparently traveled to the college to learn new things, but he had to do some pretty hard convincing with his dad. But eventually his old man caved, so when he was picking a university, Henry went straight for his best bud, Victor. While they're talking on the way to class, Henry notes that he looks a bit tired and pale. Then Victor starts acting all weird and overthinking about what will happen if his friend sees the monster. But thankfully for him, he's gone. 
Victor's happy at first, and Henry thinks it's because he's happy to see him, but little does Henry know it's for an entirely different reason. Victor keeps acting strange and then imagines that his creation is running after him. By this point, Henry's already got a pretty good idea that Victor's upset, so he stays behind to help him cope with the ill-advised creation of an eight-foot undead monster, as any good friend would, and Victor feels better. He now wants to know how to repay Henry for his kindness, and Henry's got one thing on his mind. Just right home, dude. Your family misses you, and I've been doing all the writing for you. My mom's getting tired. Then, to everyone's surprise, Victor gets a letter from his sister. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I'm really glad you could make it, and I hope you enjoyed the festivities. If you want to stay connected to the show, I'd invite you to pop on over to Facebook or Twitter and give the page a follow. Just search Ebon Zone on Facebook and Official EBZ on Twitter. If you're new, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next week, my friend, God bless you, stay humble, and remember, keep an ear out.